Hey, how are you? Good day. Great to talk to you. This is not a book you wanted to write. It's a book you felt compelled to write. Why is that? Well, you know, I write every single day. I have 9,000 blog posts in a row. Writing is something I like to do. But publishing a book is harder than ever, and it takes a year of your life away because you want to bring an idea of substance to people. And what I'm trying to do here, not sell a book, but have a conversation to get people to talk about why are they going to spend 90,000 hours at a job? What are they going to get out of it? And what are the rest of us are going to get from the work that they so bravely and generously contribute? Hmm. And we're not having having that conversation. We're just accepting that all we need to do is race to the bottom. And I think we can do better than that. What do you see in Silicon Valley or at Amazon that, that requires a manifesto, a bit of a call to do things differently? Well, we've been brainwashed for 120 years by the incredible wealth produced by factories, by industrialism, by churning it out. And once we got good at using machines, we turned to people. That's why they're called human resources, because mm-hmm. They're treating people like a resource, not like humans. And if someone's watching with a stopwatch, surveilling you, getting you to do what you did yesterday with faster and cheaper, getting you on a Zoom call to make sure you're not sitting at home doing nothing, that is enervating, sucks the life out of us. And it's possible to produce value, to create meaning by doing work differently. Do employees know why they feel so burnt out and unsatisfied at work? Do they know that there is another way to work with with meaning and trust? Well, I think they know they've been lied to and manipulated for a generation. The factory came to people and said, here's the deal. You come to this building where you don't want to go and do what you don't want to do, and if you do it with obedience, we'll take care of you. And that deal has been broken over and over again. with layoffs and downsizing and outsourcing and robots and AI – And people are saying, ah, I get it now. This is not what you promised. (laughs) So you've got quiet quitting and great resignations and and just people feeling exhausted. And the answer is not to do less. The answer is to raise our standards, turn it into something that we want to enroll in, the change we seek to make. And companies and organizations and institutions that do that Get an enormous amount done, make more money, have more impact, not because they've tricked people, but because they've aligned with what people truly want and need. Yeah, make more money, though it's not all about the money. You asked 10,000 people around the world to describe the best jobs they ever had. What did they tell you? Well, so I listed 14 things that made it the best job, and I picked three that bosses would pick, which is I get fired, I got paid a lot. And I got to tell people what to do. Because if you think about it, if you're good at your job and you try to quit, those are the three things they're going to offer you (laughs) to get you to stay. And in fact, that's not what people actually want. What they want is to be treated with respect, to achieve more than they thought they could, and to be proud of the work they're doing with others. And we can do that. We can do that whether we're making coffee or chocolate or building a transportation company. It's not that everyone needs to be an oncologist. It's that we need to find a way to make a change happen that we are proud of. Employers often complain that young people just aren't willing to work hard today. They've been coddled too much or they won too many trophies for participation uh, on their way through. Do you see that at all? Is there anything to that? Well, young people are really smart. 
They're saying, well, what's in it for me? I get what's in it for you. But if you watch those very same young people go to play football or watch those very same people engage in something on the computer that they like to do, they're not lazy. They're totally engaged. They're smarter than they, the bosses ever were when they were their age. And so what these people are telling you is not that they're lazy. They're telling you that you're making a bad deal. And if you go to people um, and say, this is the change we are going to make together, and I'm going to treat you like the kind of person who has options, it's amazing what humans can produce, particularly working in sync, particularly when they're connected by computers and by a mission. You have a B on the front cover of your book, and I should say that the B hasn't always been held up as a sort of an ideal of the way that humans work. I think there's a there's a term, working like a drone. It, um, it involves keeping your head down and, and being one of the masses. But what is it about the B that you like as a metaphor for the kind of workplace culture that we should be striving for? Well, we know that the best bees in the world are in New Zealand. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a fan. Uh, the thing is, misogyny runs deep, and almost all bees are female. And so this whole idea of, of worker bees and everything else, it's all mythology. In fact, the typical bee in its entire lifetime only produces one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey. And yet, the honey they produce is enough to sustain the hive and feed the people who built the hive. The bees are organized without an organizer, coordinated without a coordinator. They are selfless. They are connected. They understand what they are there to do. And it's not mindless. It's the opposite. It's mindful. And we can learn an enormous amount of the bravery of the bees, the way they leap when they sing the song of increase. And we can also learn from the song of safety, which is what happens after they go feral. They only have three days to find a new place to live. And they hunker down and they form a tight ball and they're paralyzed. And humans shouldn't do that. And the bees have figured out what to do when that hits, which is to find the place to go next, the work that they need to do next. Yeah, maybe part of the problem with humans is we let fear take the wheel. We fear unemployment or or, or maybe a loss of reputation at work for asking for things to be different. Um, you've got a nice way of thinking about that. You say we should dance with fear, and that involves a, um, a move from safe to significant. Can you tell us about the song of significance that gives your book its title? So what it means to be significant is that you have found meaning that you would be missed if you were gone, that you made a change happen, that you did work that matters. And if you work in a place that can't tell you who they're trying to change and the change they seek to make, it's really unlikely you're going to find significance. But it could even happen if you're a barista. If someone's willing to pass three other chain stores to get a flat white from you instead, because you looked them in the eye and you remember what they said yesterday and you're able to be a human with them, you didn't just make them coffee, you made them better. And that is available to so many of us because, fortunately, we don't work in a uranium mine. What we get to do is make decisions, not stuff. We get to make a difference. And it's possible, not because the boss is going to come in tomorrow and decide, oh, that's the way everything works, and not because you can change it all by yourself, but because we can have the conversation about it. How do you get that feeling of significance when you are in a job that feels insignificant. Um, is that a failure of leadership if you're in a job that feels that way? Well, most of the people 
who are listening to this have enough freedom at work to do something like start a book group without getting fired, a hmm. tiny step, a tiny step significant. But the way that we can start adding meaning to our work is not by changing everything in one day, but by finding the smallest possible unit of contribution, of generosity, what I call a ruckus, showing up to make things better. If we do that just a little, we will find something, and then tomorrow we will get to do it more. And if you work in a place where that is not permitted, then you should probably go work somewhere else. Hmm. You do have to work, but you don't have to work there. Can you tell us about the car wash and, and how that sings the song of significance? Okay, so do you, do you have many car washes in the less car-centric part of the world where you live? <laughs> yeah, well, I would say, you know, maybe half of service stations would have a car wash, maybe a, a little fewer, okay. but everyone knows what, what one is, yeah. Okay, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't going to have a cultural <laughs> problem. All right, so a car wash is as robotic as it gets, and the goal of most car wash owners is to lower the price as much as they can and still make a profit to get volume. And a guy named Thomas Deary, whose uh, brother was developmentally disabled and on the autism spectrum, saw that his brother was never going to be able to get the kind of job that he thought he deserved. So he started a car wash. But this car wash isn't optimized to be cheap. It's optimized to create positive working environment for the uh, neurodiverse people who work there. Mm -hmm. And the astonishing thing about the Rising Tide car wash is it makes a great profit. And he opened a second one, and it turned paid for itself in 90 days. Because the people who go to that car wash are finding, just in getting their car washed by eager, enrolled people, that it's worth extra to do that. That they'll pay a lot, but they'll get more than they paid for. Hmm. And so if we can do this at a car wash with neurodiverse people, what could we do at your business? And it could even be, you know, a radio station or it could be a service station. It doesn't matter what we make. It matters how we make it. I'm talking to Seth Godin. His book is called The Song of Significance, a manifesto for teams and the people who lead them. Of course, all conversations at the moment, Seth, turn to artificial intelligence, AI. Is this a moment when we should be thinking even harder about human connection and, and human possibilities at work? Yeah, that's a great point. You know, here's the, the first thing I would say is, AI is going to change the world as much as electricity did. And if you don't think it's coming for whatever work you do that is mediocre, you are mistaken. It can already do mediocre work. So either you're going to work for an AI or an AI is going to work for you. We need to figure out how are we going to use this tool to do more of the human work of creating meaning, not less. Because if we race to the bottom, we might win, and then you have to live there. But what it's going to enable us to do is have a persistent, leveraged assistant who does things that we can write a script for. And what's going to be left for people is to write the script, not to follow them. What happens, Seth? What happens when an employer builds a culture where people take responsibility for their work? Well, so... Uh, I based a lot of the stories in the book on the work I did as a volunteer for over a year, building a book called The Carbon Almanac, a very complicated 97,000-word illustrated, footnoted, fact-checked book about the climate. And every person who worked on it, more than 300, was a volunteer, including me. And we leaned into this idea that nobody's managing this, but some people are leading it. 
We lean into the idea that you could make a big promise and keep it incrementally contributing. And the proof of it is that we created this 97,000 word book ahead of schedule after less than five months without one significant error. And it was difficult, challenging work, and no one got paid to do it. So I'm not saying workers don't need to get paid. What I'm saying is that if you create the conditions for this sort of dance with each other and with possibility, you can do extraordinary things in a really small amount of time. And we're seeing this with computers, but also without computers, people doing this in community that humans have for tens of thousands of years. And the revolution begins at the edges. Where do you start the journey to really change work culture? Right, to what you just said, <laughs> with the edges. It's never going to start at the top. It's always going to be a few people who find each other, make a small contribution, and then do it again. You've got some principles to live by. Uh, you talked about not thinking of humans as a resource, and, and the only other one I wanted to ask you about was, um, because I, it's such an interesting distinction once someone points it out, that management is not the same as leadership. Can I just ask you to talk a bit about that? Well, we need leaders. I'm sorry, we need managers. We need managers because without managers, the airline isn't going to be able to fly the plane the way they said they would, and the um, the hospital isn't going to be able to reduce infections. That management is using power and authority to tell people exactly what to do next. But management falls apart when the world changes. Management falls apart when we get inter interaction with unpredictable humans. Then we need leadership. Leadership is voluntary. Leadership is things that might not work. Leadership is exploring the future, not recreating the past. And managers are leaders. Some leaders are managers. I've had both jobs. I'm much better at leading than I am at managing. That's very good at telling people exactly what to do. So you should figure out what job are you being asked to do? What job are you good at? And go do that one or else get better at the one you want to be good at. <laughs> but just because you have a title doesn't mean you're a leader. What do you mean when you say that hiring is not dating? Okay, so we need labels. You're not allowed to go to the supermarket and taste the ice cream before you buy it. You have to judge it by the label. <laughs> and these labels are proxies. They are things that we have come to understand as to what might follow. And the question is, how do we hire people? What labels are we looking at? Are we basing it on their race, on whether they're a victim of colonialism, on caste systems? Are we basing it on their gender, their height, whether they're good at interviewing, whether we'd want to have lunch with them? Because unless you have lunch for a living, hiring people you want to have lunch with is not <laughs> useful. And the alternative is to get really clear about what are the labels that actually predict whether this person is going to be able to do the work. And generally, the label is, have they done the work? Can you create projects for people that show that they can do projects? And then the people who can do the projects are probably the kind of people you want to work with. Mm. But we're stuck with these false proxies because we've built this regime of interviewing that is just thinly veiled uh, recitation of caste and class. And it's costing companies a lot of time and money and it also creates a lot of trauma in our society. What is a useful imposter? So I'm pretty sure, even in your hemisphere, imposter syndrome is rampant. For sure. Imposter, sy imposter syndrome is that way, that moment we feel like we are a fraud, we are unqualified, we don't belong here. 
And people say, well, how do I get rid of that? And my answer is, you can't and don't want to because it's a sign that you're healthy, that you're not a sociopath. Because if you are leading, <laughs> then you are an imposter because you're doing something that's never been done before. You can't prove that it can be done because you haven't done it yet. So a useful imposter, somebody who shows up not to defraud us or hustle us, but to help us, to take us to where we hope to go together. And they do that by asserting a future that isn't here yet. And if you feel like when you're an imposter when you're doing that, that might be a sign that you're trying. And then our job is to figure out which promises we can make and keep them. Oh, there's so much more in the book, too. It's called The Song of Significance, a manifesto for teams and the people who lead them. Seth Godin, thanks so much for your intelligence and your time today. Well, thanks for having me. Go make a ruckus. I appreciate you.